At the height of the COVID-19 pandemic, many primary care practices either closed or switched entirely to telemedicine, losing revenue until changes were made in the reimbursement process. The rapid buy-up and consolidation of independent practices, a trend that already existed due to financial stressors, accelerated rapidly. As a family doctor, I understand the struggles of day-to-day practice, but I was curious to understand how the market forces intertwined with what I knew of primary care on the ground. I wanted to build a podcast series that could serve as a primer and create transparency around concepts like payment models, antitrust, private equity, and to showcase independent practices that have managed to stay independent despite the challenges they face today. My name is Lolita Abhyankar. I'm a family physician, and from Health Affairs, you're listening to Piecemeal, where we take a closer look at how consolidation in healthcare is affecting independent primary care practices and what that could mean for our healthcare system. Thank you so much for joining me today. This series has been in the works for a really long time, and I'm finally excited to bring the whole thing to life. As I mentioned before, my name is Lalita Abhyankar. As a family physician, I'm trained in primary care for all ages. This includes annual checkups and health screenings, but also includes pediatric visits, chronic disease management, geriatric care, prenatal care, women's health, transgender care, HIV care, mental health, etc. For most patients, unless they're going to the emergency room, I serve as the access point into the healthcare system and help provide continuity and build relationships with my patients to care for their health as they age. So far, my experience has been working as an employed physician, meaning I work for an organization and get a salary. However, throughout this series, we'll mostly be speaking with independent physicians, doctors who own and operate their own practices, instead of being employed by a larger entity. Additionally, most of my experience so far has been as an employee of a federally qualified health center, which takes mostly Medicaid and Medicare. Now, as a disclosure, I'm working as a clinician manager for a clinical health tech startup, which has grown through acquisitions of practices in the last year. Despite having never been an independent physician, I am fascinated by the work of many of my colleagues who own and operate their own practice, because owning your own practice essentially means you hold two jobs, one of being a medical doctor and the other of running a business. In the United States, the majority of primary care doctors have historically been independent. However, from 1983 to 2014, the percentage of physicians working in independently owned practices with fewer than 10 doctors declined from 80% to 61%. Solo practice doctors declined from 44% to 19%. And in 2020, for the first time, the number of physicians who were employed by hospital and corporate health systems was more than half of the physician workforce across all specialties. COVID-19 accelerated this trend further, with multiple independent practices shutting their doors and doctors choosing employment. The 2021 Merritt Hawkins Survey of Final Year Residents, which asked 103 graduating residents various questions about workplace interest, noted that only 1% of respondents, so like one person, said that they were interested in solo practice, and 32% felt unprepared to deal with the business side of medicine. It's a small sample, sure, 
but I'd agree with the trends. Starting your own practice is really daunting. There's the brick-and-mortar office space to consider. There's practice licensing, the supplies to care for patients, and sometimes expensive medical equipment, medications, vaccines that need to be purchased, and maintenance of the space needs to follow certain regulatory guidelines and standards. The highest cost is often of personnel. A more traditional practice has one nurse, one medical assistant, a receptionist, and if it's a larger practice, a practice administrator to manage the business side of things. There's the being on call all the time, and over the past 20 years, additional regulations on practices, including the requirement of electronic health records, which can be prohibitively expensive, and changing reimbursement and payment requirements by insurance companies have also caused financial challenges. You might ask why someone might want to be an independent physician. Isn't it easier to just be employed? As we'll learn later in the series, most independent doctors have chosen to be their own bosses because they want to practice medicine the way they learned how, and they want to be responsible for the decision-making that goes into how their practice is run. The challenges of being an employed physician and of being an independent physician are similar when it comes to day-to-day practice. For example, I've experienced running one to two hours behind on a tightly scheduled day where I've tried to fit in procedures for patients while fielding calls from specialists and while trying to make sure that care is delivered smoothly. The difference is that as an employed physician, there is a chain of leadership that makes a lot of workflow decisions. Sometimes it's great. The decisions are thoughtful and save my decision-making capabilities for patients. Other times, being employed can mean a lot of bureaucracy and efficiency challenges that don't make sense on the ground. Under those circumstances, I completely understand why someone would want to have the agility of a small practice to ensure good patient care. However, as we'll learn, this only works if a small practice can make enough money to make ends meet. And there are a lot of hurdles that independent doctors have to face in order to make the same amount of money a larger, more consolidated organization does. While the overall number of independent practices has declined, and over 50% of physicians are now employed, that still means that a large number of patients in the United States are cared for by smaller independent practices. Many of these practices are found in rural areas where closure or consolidation of these long-standing independent practices could lead to decreased access to care and loss of continuity in already low-access areas. I spoke with Wayne Strauss, an independent primary care physician in Penyan, a small rural community in upstate New York, for more context on how he's viewed consolidation. He started out as a physician for the Navy, but early on decided to go into practice on his own. He says that in the Navy... Anything that you wanted to get done, you had to build consensus. And so when I got there, they weren't doing full vital signs. And it took me four months to convince people that we should do full vital signs in a medical clinic. And and I thought, you know, I'd really like to be doing this on my own and doing it right, because I'm finding that I'm dealing with bureaucracies and things that are slowing me down and preventing me from doing the best care that I know how to do. And so an opening in my little town opened up where several actually physicians were leaving. And I kind of figured if there was going to be a chance for me to be that small town doc that I always envisioned myself to be in solo practice, this was my chance. 
Dr. Strauss has noted the difference in his rural community. When he started back in 1997, there were 12 independent doctors in his community, plus three more who worked as primary care doctors, but were employed by the local hospital. Now, I am the only independent family physician in my county. Everybody else either works for the hospital or more likely is working for the hospital in Rochester, which is an hour and a half away. And so little by little, the practices just got gobbled up. The one other practice that's here is there's a community health center that is also kind of gigantic and has eight or nine clinics spread throughout the area, but it's centered in, in Penyan. You know, there were a, a few practices that sold to the local hospital, then a large practice sold to a hospital in Rochester. And I, all of that has been going on, I'd say, more in the last 10 years or so. So let's talk about consolidation. What exactly is it? Well, consolidation is the act or process of combining a number of different entities. In the case of healthcare, it could be mergers between hospital systems or buyouts of a large pharmacy by a health insurance company. There are two main types of consolidation in healthcare. I asked Sean Martin, the CEO of the American Academy of Family Physicians, to explain. So you have you know, kind of two traditional tracks of consolidation that have existed in, in the economy in general, not just in healthcare. So you have vertical integration that has largely historically been aimed at aligning you know, various pieces of the supply chain or kind of the, the connecting entities in an in a upward and downward efficiency model. And the other is horizontal you know, integration or consolidation that allows people in like industries or like functions to align to try to create efficiencies across that particular business function, you know, in some manner and across multiple geographies. So essentially, if a hospital buys a primary care practice, that's vertical consolidation. The primary care practice is how the hospital can bring people into their system to use the different services, like specialists, pharmacies, etc. Horizontal consolidation is when a bunch of independent practices, all primary care, join together to create a larger entity. To be horizontally consolidated, they've all got to be owned by the same organization. It's not just like an alliance of practices, which we're also seeing, but we'll get to that a little later. So what's the main driver of consolidation in healthcare? Here's Sean Martin again. And when you think, you know, about the early days of this in 2000 to, you know, kind of coming out of the Medicare drug benefit debate, the kind of early days of the uh, Bush administration directive around electronic health records and kind of modifying the ambulatory health record that existed in, in the healthcare system, you started to create downward economic pressures, and you put the burden of those pressures really on the lowest margin practices. So the downward pressures that he's talking about has to do with the fact that back in the early 2000s, primary care practices were tasked with updating their technology, which is a good thing. It required them to move from paper charting to computer charting. Electronic health records, as I mentioned before, can be exorbitantly expensive for small practices to purchase and implement. Plus, bad design, or design from a billing perspective, meant that clinicians lost their ability to connect with their own patients during their office visits. 
less tech-savvy physicians had an especially hard time adapting to software that didn't have the clinician's experience in mind at all. On the upside, the software meant that it was possible to collect a whole lot of data that we could not collect before, which was also a good thing. But trying to make meaningful use of all of that data meant that certain metrics were developed that were more like proxies for what healthcare looked like and didn't necessarily reflect quote-unquote quality of care. Even then, these metrics were sometimes the only way that a physician could get paid for the work that they were doing, provided they put the information into the correct tiny boxes within this new electronic health record. It's a lot harder than it looks when you're also thinking at a high level about the patient who's in front of you. Even today, physicians in all types of practice settings don't always collect information in a way that reflects their work, which leads to less reimbursement, which then leads to more redundant work that on top of all of the logistics of running a practice becomes very expensive and time-consuming. So, you know, those practices began to seek economic relief in some type that would allow them to implement changes uh, in their workflows, in their, in their data processing, and data collection experiences and functions, you know, in a manner competitive with the larger system. So, you know, electronic health records, quality reporting, to some extent, you know, board certification and recertification and continuous certification. So licensing and certification is something that all physicians have to do. Even I, as an employed physician, have to shell out a couple thousand dollars per year to keep up my license, my controlled substance prescribing certificate, CPR training, continuing medical education through conferences, etc. As an employed physician, I expect reimbursement for all of it. I would say that the financial burden of education, like medical school, could also be included in the annual education costs for physicians. Loans end up eating up a lot of your income. In fact, one of the incentives of being employed by a practice that serves underinsured patients in low-access settings is the option of loan forgiveness. So if you want to start your own practice, but you need the loan forgiveness in order to be financially stable, you're kind of out of luck. According to Sean, our pursuit of value drove consolidation. And, you know, the health insurance industry and governments, both uh, state and federal government, and their pursuit of providing better care to the patients that they have in their health programs, they uh, basically created an untenable economic situation for independent physician practices, and physicians were forced to uh, pursue economic relief or co-op shared economic stress, if it might be a different way to put it. So they, they, you, you saw rapid consolidation. Hospitals and health systems reached down, bought up practices you know, within you know, the kind of catchment area, and positions began to align horizontally. And I think you see both of them competing with each other today. So let's talk about the benefits of consolidation. The biggest positive is that physicians who work for a large healthcare system usually end up with better technology, better access to other physicians and specialists, better integration with the hospital and the emergency department where all patient records can be shared, and communication isn't fragmented. From an economic perspective, once a system dominates a particular market, it can then negotiate with insurance companies for how it's going to get paid or reimbursed. The insurance company is less likely to deny paying for a service or procedure 
if your practice is a part of a larger market share. I asked Dr. Strauss what benefits of consolidation he's noted as a solo doctor not affiliated with the hospital and he states that his patients have had increased access to specialists. The larger hospitals can send specialists a few times a week to the clinics that they own in the more rural areas. There's no reason to go all the way to Rochester to see a neurosurgeon anymore. However, Dr. Strauss says that his patients have noticed a big difference with all of the centralization that comes with corporatization. People were replaced by phone trees and it got harder and harder to reach your doctor. I recently was sending a patient to a hospital because she was having problems with her pregnancy and I needed to call the OB ward on that hospital. And I got routed through Rochester, the central hospital, which was like an hour away from this place, who told me that, you know, when I said I'd need to talk to this doctor, they said they would email the doctor. And I said, you know, but if they have questions, I want to talk to them about what's going on. No, I couldn't do that. So I think there's been some blocks put in the way. It's people feel more distant from their doctors. And when I set up my practice, I knew there was a niche in this area of people who wanted to see a doctor every time, wanted it to be small, wanted it to be a quote unquote country doctor. The patients who are coming to me are saying, we're coming to you because we've heard that we have a personal relationship with a doctor. That fragmentation of communication between the health system and practices outside of the health system is something that a lot of patients have complained about. But it's still one of the softer, more anecdotal consequences of consolidation. More concretely, studies have shown that horizontal consolidation of hospitals, horizontal consolidation among physician practices, vertical consolidation, consolidation of insurance companies, mergers, and the influence of private equity have all increased prices without any statistically significant improvement in quality of care when compared to a less consolidated market. In fact, the more consolidated a market is, meaning the fewer options available to patients within a particular geographic location, the more things tend to cost, and that increased cost is often passed on to patients. So if high levels of consolidation don't actually improve the healthcare system, then what's driving it to happen? That's the question that I hope to explore in this podcast series. If you liked this episode and are looking forward to hearing more, please make sure to share, like, and subscribe or comment and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. And please be sure to stay tuned for all the series through the Health Affairs Podcast Fellowship. From Health Affairs, you're listening to Piecemeal. Thank you so much, and I hope to see you next time. Music melody and production by So Brown and Jack Mason. 